0: Contra is friction. Contra is.
1: Contra is nuanced. Contra Contra is is transgressive.
0: Good trouble. Contra Contra is is
1: collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive.
0: Contra is texture. How do disability culture and design practices shape contemporary disability art? In this episode of Contra, Critical Design Lab member Cassandra Hartblay and I talk to disability dancer Alice Shepard about her project Descent, which includes choreography, spatial design, and technology design. Hi everyone. This is Amy Hamrai. I'm so excited to be here today with Alice Shepard and also with Cassandra Hartblay, who's a member of the Critical Design Lab. Welcome
2: Alice. Uh, so I just want to like let you like stop by saying, I am in Prague with the um, we are the design, and and the ramps and everything, is part of the Prague Quadrennial, and we are part of the U.S. Pavilion for the Prague Quadrennial in set and stage design. I'm like, holy moly, this is out of control, brilliant. So that's so exciting. It is. But it's like awesome to be like doing that and to have this moment of being like, this is what I'm here to do, and. Talking to to do at the same time, so I'm thrilled um, to like do it and everything, and to be recognized and seen in this way.
0: So the ramp that you're referring to is part of your performance called Descent, and I wonder if we could just start out by talking about Descent as a project. Um, any elements, design elements that you want to discuss, and how it relates to disability culture. <laughs>
2: uh, so Descent is uh, it's a dance that's what I, I usually begin with it's an evening length dance work performed by two disabled artists that tells the love story or invents a love story for the mythical figures Venus and Andromeda um, coming out of a dance uh, sculpture, The Toilette of Venus in Andromeda. And it is set on this incredible stage set that we call The Ramp, which of course is, basically it's also what we would think of as ramp porn. It's an incredible cross between um, a kind of like a velodrome on the side of a cycle thing and a half point and an underworld deck and cave and a peaky, peaky, peaky bit to sit on. And it's a ramp, but it's like no other uh, access, wheelchair access ramp. It is what you would want if a ramp was a work of art. And that is exactly what it is. So um, Descent is a dance set on a ramp. Is, how, is the four word version of it. But in another, another language, it's just this incredible exploration of intersectional disability culture, uh, engaging specifically with questions of gender, gender identity, uh, queerness, race, and interracial relationships, and sexuality, love making, intimacy, power, and strength between two disabled women. And a ramp, <laughs> which is really the third partner. Um, so, uh, and uh, we are lit uh, by our, by Michael Mag, who's also a disabled artist. Uh, uh, one of the, maybe the only uh, wheelchair-using uh, lighting video projection designer right now. And uh, he's telling a story of us... Uh, and the two dancers, but also of the sculptures and the Rodin's mythical world in projections. And um, everything about the show is lit from a wheelchair user's sort of ideal perspective, because Michael is a wheelchair user. And so he lights for the disabled body to highlight the disabled body. It's not just sort of incidental. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's an incredible moment. It it is, I think it is a massive work of disability culture um, in so many different ways. So many different ways, yeah.
0: That's wonderful. And I've heard so many good things about this performance. It's received tons of acclaim. And one of the most interesting and creative design elements based on what I've heard has been the audio description tracks. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what audio description means in this case for a dance performance and how you and your team went about creating the audio descriptions for folks who are there on site Mm -hmm. during the performance.
2: So, yeah, this is also part of a story. Um, I worked with a live describer um, to uh, uh, kind of a preview showing to create um, some description. Uh, And, you know, I checked in with Georgina Clegg and Georgina was like, uh, yeah, you know, just make sure that it's it has some kind of, like, artistic merit to it. And we did that, we thought. But as it turned out, um, the, the whole question of audio description is so much more complicated, so much more complicated. Um, so, and um, when, when the, the actual experience happened, Georgina and Josh Mealy said, yeah, we know you did what industry, we know you did better than the industry standard but this is not it. We were like, okay, well, what is it? What, what is it? And um, here's what we're learning, and um, we don't have the answers to everything yet, so here's what we're learning. We are learning that if you simply describe, most audio description for dance is a description of the action on stage. You know, she turned left, she turned right, she did this, she did that, she did, did it. And it's it's supposedly narrated in this objective voice. And so we're learning two things about that three things fact that, in fact. One is that this is a displaced encounter with the work, right? If you're getting a description of the art, you're not getting the art. Right, so the first thing we decided to do is think about like, well, what is dance when it is not a visual art form and it is a sonic art form? So we tried to think about like, how do we as register as sound? So, um, there's poetry written by Eli Clare. Uh, there is, Eli poetry is set to a soundscape made by Dylan Keefe from Radio Lab. We commissioned David Linton, who also wrote a kind of dramatic dialogue. We recorded the sounds of the set. And we recorded some of the dancer sounds, like the breath and the bumps and that. And so we really decided to think through like the physicality of it so that you could get a full sense of the dance as sound in many, many different ways. But then we went back, and we realized that um, we'd hit yet yet another layer of learning, Um, and that is, dance is about the movement of the body. But, and and at some level, there are groups of people um, who, like me and other dancers, have very strong um, kinesthetic mirroring patterns and so we are people who can understand quickly in process you know she turned left she stretched her arms she did it, and we get an artistic experience from that but it part of that depends on having already had either a physical experience of dance or having had a lot of sight, sort of ocular centric information about what that might look like and so part of what we realize is that we're at next level of learning is we don't want to cut out the notion that dance is about the moving body. But we also recognize that we haven't found ways to artistically and meaningfully uh, describe the moving body in words. Um, and so we're still we're still looking at that, still working on that, still trying to figure out like um, what is it we need to do because... You know, dance is an art form of the mood body. It have to be a verbal art form of the mood body, or it is a verbal art form of the moving body. And I think here's another point of learning, is that um, for the moment, because description for dance hasn't been widely available, we do not have audiences who are skilled or familiar with the interpretive practice of you stretched your arm. And so do you see what I mean? There's both a both there's a, there's an experience and familiarity level as well as an artist an and artistic encounter level. So we are really asking these questions and stripping it back and learning again and again and again and again and again. All I can say for certain is that whatever happens, it is not one thing. It, it is, it, it just, it, whatever description is for dance, it is not a single description for dance. And so
0: does the audience receive the descriptions through a mobile
2: device or an app? Uh, Laurel Lawson, who is an engineer and, and UI architect uh, came back and said, I have a technical solution. And so she has come up with an app that is currently alpha testing for internal performance and um, will eventually be able to develop it for open source release to all. Um, so any no one has any excuse for dance not being accessible. And the basic deal is you download the app when you arrive and you get your pre-show content, like the programs and band on the collaboration with Sarah Hendren and the students at Owen College and the ramp and you get like the story and the plot and the background information and the sculptures and the characters and so you get oriented to the world of the dance then it goes into show mode and uh, essentially what happens is all of these different tracks are synced together um, and um, you know, with the music and the dance on stage. And so you can, through the app, choose to listen to just one track. Like if you are, um, say you are a visual, a non-visual audience member, who is basically only able to comprehend one set of um, tracks choose to listen to the poetry. Uh, which is set to a soundtrack. And it's kind of like listening to an hour-long symphony. You know? Um, And and that is a beautiful experience. Uh, If you are a skilled listener, Um, and you are much more oriented to uh, sonic and um, audio worlds, you might, what we've been calling for a shorthand, DJ your way through the experience because they're synced up. You can basically switch between any of these tracks at any point and it will more or less pick up at the same place so you get a simultaneous experience. And that's really important because a sighted person chooses what they look at Um, and chooses what part of the show they see. Whereas usually Describers for Dance just get this long monologue voice of one person's objective and one, you know, no choice. Um, And if you are a member of um, what we're calling expert listeners, um, you can process two tracks at once. Um, And those will just kind of like, maybe you will put like the the description of the movement in one ear and the poetry in another ear. And you can do that. Um, so that's the experience. And we're not done. Um, it's not. And the thing about it is because there's no gold standard yet, we're not done. Um, and we basically sat down with Georgina afterwards and said, yeah, what's what's going to be up with this? How can we work with you to um, build a world that makes sense and sound? And so Georgina said she would come and play on the ramp. And she came and she... Um, Learned some of the dance movement itself and um, she checked in on some of the tracks uh, that we were making uh, and I worked with Eli and David and the uh, recording people for the sound, the body sounds and and, uh, there it was.
0: This raises an interesting question about whether audio description in relation to dance is its own aesthetic form or whether it's some sort of translation of one aesthetic form into another. And I think that this question also gets at um, broader discussions that we have within the theory of accessibility about whether there ought to be kind of like an original form that gets translated um through some sort of like accommodation or adaptation or retrofit or whether accessibility should be built into the things that we are creating whether it's a building or a dance so i wonder what you think about that
2: can i can i like back into like um back into that um and say i think those are the wrong questions frankly um uh what it means to translate and accessible like if you're in the space of translation you're already dead in the water you're already dead it's over because i mean even 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 you know despite or what it was over it was 10 to 15 years ago the sort of rise of translation theory uh and in which it was it was to sort of theorize that you could in fact have two equal works of art where one was a translation over the other and that we could move towards that you know, by the time you have, have got to the point of thinking about, oh gosh, I've got to translate this, you're done. It's, yeah. So it, it's already set in a way that makes no sense. Can you say more about that? I mean, the problem is the hierarchy of the original and the translated version. You know, there's always going to be a presume that the real thing, the thing that the artist created, was this, and the adapted thing was this, or the translated thing, or the whatever it was thing. It's just one step removed. And so, yeah, it's just, it's, so the question has become, at this point in the learning, it's not how do you create access retroactively too late. The question has been what does it mean to think about access in the process, in the moment, as you do it? So, um, for example, I'm talking to blind artist Borgiana Cochleat from NYU. And Borgiana was just like, uh, you know, I don't have a sense of why any of the movement is happening. You can describe the movement to me, but I have no sense of why the movement is happening. And in addition, you know... um, that's one of those questions are, you know, in dance, we often say the movement alone is enough. You know, it is the movement alone is just glorious and beautiful. And we we drink that up. But if you're coming from a perspective where you don't necessarily have the experience for all of that, or um, you are coming from a, a perspective where in fact, you know, even if you were cited, the movement alone would not be enough, which is also, you know, I mean, I, I just don't think you can exclude one the multiplicity of an experience. So, Bajana's point is, you know, what if there were narrative? Like, what is, if if everything that you do presumes some kind of arc, in which the rationale for the movement description is, um, anyway, sorry. Um, my response to Bajana is to think about well, what maybe that means that everything we do. Has some kind of arc, if not a grand narrative, that there's some kind of clear narrative arc, and then the narrative is part of a non-visual aesthetic, even if there's no story being told, and that's simply what it means as an artist to create in non-visual in a non-visual way, perhaps, and that's one stage of learning that we will do and test, and someone will tell us it worked for them, and someone else will tell us it sucked, and that's okay. Um, but I think I think the point is to work into these questions as the work gets made, not to try and deal with it after the work is done. This
0: reminds me of a similar conversation that we have around accessibility theory and architecture um, about the idea that a building shouldn't have to be retrofitted to be accessible, that accessibility should be built in from the beginning. Do you think that there is a parallel concept for creative work that um, is not architectural work, for example, like dance performances?
2: I mean, it's a little more complicated than that, right? I mean, in theory, that's the direction that kinetic light is heading. And I am developing into my artistic practice. But I think the problem with that is that um, if If you go to a non-disabled artist and say, hey, your work has to be accessible, and actually it's not the venue, the presenter, or the gallerist, or the curator's problem to make it accessible, it's your accessibility, it's your problem, You're, you're reaching into the notion of what is creativity and what is artistic process, and you're really kind of butting into that space where an artist may feel that their creative process doesn't doesn't work in an accessible way, and so then the challenge is about what what is creation and what is creativity, and what are the responsibilities of a creative process. And you know, you could make an argument that a quarter of your audience might be disabled in some way, uh, and and you could also make an according uh, the argument is well, three quarters of my audience isn't, therefore I could have my own creative genius and have it go. So I, I think. Um, we're not we are not yet in the context to handle those discussions, but I hope that they will be happening pretty soon.
1: If I could add something here, um Mrs. Cassandra, as someone who's uh, kind of working in an interesting way kind of between both of you as an anthropologist who's worked both in terms of how people with disabilities move through the city but then also in performance spaces. One of the things that I've really noticed is that um, when we're talking about artworks, the process and the making of the work is so much a part of the contemporary conversation around the arts um, that I think, Amy, going back to the design and the architecture, uh, the kind of concept of accessibility is an aesthetic that's woven into the process of building the work uh, that Alice is talking about, would, if you were to reflect that into architecture, that would look more like the, there are disabled people participating in the design process of the building, right? Rather than the final product in, of an architectural work being the building itself and the final product of an artistic work being going to the theater and seeing the show, right? Like, But when you're talking about accessibility uh, being woven into the process so that it builds the aesthetic of the work, not only, you know, it's not like, oh, we called the ASL interpreter to come to the performance or we called the audio describer to come to the performance and they came to two rehearsals. It's like the entire aesthetic of the work is already through the process engaged with those conversations and led by those collaborators. Um, So I feel like there's a there's like a nuance to process versus product that's really Mm -hmm. important the way that aesthetic comes into being here.
2: Right I mean it takes out authorship. It just takes out authorship, you know, and and maybe and and maybe in disability community we like that because it's an artistic version of interdependence, but it does take out authorship in some really complicated and challenging ways, and you know it, that's that's an open question too.
0: Do you think that there's something in that that could be instructive for design? at other scales like architecture. Um, For example, in architecture, there's this concept of the party, which is the argument that a building makes. And that is theoretically supposed to be woven through everything from the structure and the form to all the functional and aesthetic and experiential aspects.
2: I mean, in the end, descent is an experience that is choreographed from the moment you hear about the show and try to buy a ticket. Um, We have choreographed that experience with greater or um, with certain degrees of control, right? I mean, I cannot choreograph public transit. Um, and I cannot choreograph the inaccessible taxi situation in New York or, or if you happen to live, but I can and do choreograph everything that happens from the moment you enter the building. Um, and um, I choreograph who you see. Um, and it, it is a thing that is, it's, it's, it, it is an experience that, to use your architectural term, does have its own party. Right? I mean, because it matters that, that a disabled person. Uh, hands you your program or a disabled person um, takes you to your seat Uh, it matters that a disabled person set the lights at a certain height and in a certain way so um, it is one smooth experience from I mean it's it's one focused immersive experience from top to bottom um, with with careful prioritization and careful coordination among different aspects of the experience like we even for example choreograph the the p break in the in the in the admission depending on you know how many accessible stalls there are so you know we've thought very carefully about how long it's going to take a bunch of wheelchair users and disabled folks to get to the bathroom so that affects like how long the intermission is, which affects how long the show is you know it it, it is it is hmm. the whole thing is is structured i mean maybe not correctly, maybe not equitably, but wholly intentionally um, so so it's not it the performance is never just what's on stage
0: something that's really important about what you're arguing is that all of these taken for granted parts of a performance experience, including the space, including how we receive sensory information, how we make time to go to the bathroom, all of these things are designed sites that we can think about through a disability culture framework. So I just want to highlight that that is a major contribution of the work that you are doing.
2: it's not Yes, I think so. And it's not just me. Like, I was part of I Want to Be With You Everywhere on the steering committee for that. And that was maybe New York City's first, like, interdisciplinary Disability Art Festival. And, you know, it was an incredible experience where um, access was, you know, not only was, I mean, it, it was art by disabled people that, for the most part, imagined people disabled people, literate in their own culture as the primary audience. And I, and I, and I, I, um, I want to talk about that for a second uh, and I want to come back at that because those are two important distinctions. Um, but also to say that it was really, for, you know, it was one of the most accessible places I've been to, you know, yet yeah, not quite sent free, but sent free mostly. A um, quiet room, um, economic reimbursement, no questions asked you know, um, for, for, for travel, um, uh, just, you know, different kinds of seating, um, a 30 minute intermission in between pieces so that people can get up and pee. Like, you know, even if the thing is only 30 minutes long, a 30 minute intermission and changeover and brain break time. And, and so like, it's not just me. It is that within, and I think this is an important moment for, uh, academia to set up and take notice because, um, there's a way in which disability arts and the disabled artists who have been marginalized for so long are actually creating worlds that you all don't know about yet. And we're doing work that is, um, yeah, that hasn't reached you, quote unquote, to theorize or study it, but that doesn't mean that it isn't happening. And um, I think it's we, we the artists are pushing things forward in very, very interesting ways. And I believe that the aesthetics and culture language that is, is will be the next set of languages that academia kind of fights over or prioritizes. But we worked it out in, in artistry for a long, a, a, a long while prior to that. And that is visible in the work, and it is visible in um, our you know, audience um, literacy.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say that um, in another episode I'm working on for this series of, or season of the podcast, um, I interview um, um, Lindsay Fisher and Eliza Chandler and um, Sean Lee uh, in Toronto uh, about their disability arts festival, which has a lot of the same themes coming up uh, in terms of the ideas about disability leadership and um, accessibility aesthetics coming through in the arts. And that was a really exciting space because it was one of the first spaces that I've seen as an ethnographer who is like trying to capture these developments in real time, you know, maybe as you say, they're not fully integrated into the academy at this moment and scholars are kind of watching what's happening in the arts. Um, And to get to see those spaces coming together was really interesting. Um, but I actually wanted to go back to something that, um, you both have kind of been talking about, um, in terms of questions about what is design practice and what is, um, art space practice. And of course, those two things overlap. Um, and, uh, I was sort of thinking about, uh, the the ramp itself in the um, descent piece and the kind of practice of how uh, I know from reading your piece in the um, recent issue of um, Catalyst uh, that Alice that that you know you worked with Sarah Hendren and that it was a really interesting process and I think one of the things that is really interesting to me as someone who kind of from outside looks at how designers think about access and i'm trying to track how access gets mobilized as a concept in different communities of practice right uh whether artists or wheelchair users in russia or uh uh, designers and i i I find that like a lot of times in sort of normative design and engineering thinking you end up in a space where it's problem-based thinking, right? And so the way that engineers are trained is to come up with a solution to a problem as quickly as possible. And that involves defining something as a problem first. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk, Alice, a little bit about how you and Sarah, and I understand her students as well, got into the work of designing a ramp that was a work of art rather than a solution to a problem.
2: Yeah, I actually feel kind of sorry for those students um, because they were first year students for the most part uh, and some second year students basically uh, talking, engineering students in the middle of a physics course who were talking to me and my first word was, oh, it's got to be beautiful, uh, which is really not a design, not a helpful engineering design spec. It's just not a helpful engineering design spec. Um, It's beautiful, it's got to be sexy, it's got to be fun. Um, These are not helpful engineering design specs. um, And yet those students were brilliant because that's what they went with. They hung in the space of what kind of movement is possible, What kinds of things does Alice like to do in her chair? How steep can slopes be if we do it this way? Does it need to be a plane? Can it be curved? Like they hung in the space for over half the semester of just asking those questions they hung in the space of gender like we had a fallopian tube version they had well because you know they so we were deeply in the organics of the body um they hung i mean they went i mean i, I don't know if engineers and usually design like that But I'm not an engineer, so the language they had to work with was my language. And um, they hung in that space for a long time before hitting the numbers. Um, And they realized that um, you can send me drawings, which they did, and sketches, but that actually asking me to make Sculpey on Skype Um, was a better way to get the engineering, the cross into my body, because, um, you know, I've been through a number of design processes in the homes I live in, but I didn't want, I knew that I wanted to be able to feel it better than, um, than imagine it, and so feeling it meant I had to have something to feel, so I was actually just kind of like, gulping these things um, that they would send me and trying to imagine what it would feel like to be on it versus like this is that raise this is that height this is going to be impossible to do in that so it was a design process that was process was very much um, asking different kinds of questions at the ramp um, and and you know as a as a i'm not a student of architecture right but um i do know some about the history of ramps and You know, I do, you know, even just sort of thinking through, like, late 19th century buildings, early 20th century buildings, like, the history of the ramp as a piece of architecture. These things were gorgeous. They were really, really gorgeous, and... uh, you know, and I love the idea of that uh, Le Corbusier quote that just says, um, Stairs separate, ramps connect. And then it's, you, know, you have a world in which the ramp is, is already known to be a device of architectural beauty. It's only when it's designed for disability that we end up with these pieces of crap, excuse my language. But so, you know, the thing that I wanted was going to be very different. Um, and so the students designed that way. Uh, which is not, it would, yeah and they made uh, we used as research ramps some of the ramps that Sarah uh, has been using for her her, her play uh, a play project where she had been like designing playscapes and making interventions for these one step ramps to cover like one step in accessibility, we used those as research ramps and then we kind of make uh, ramps that were like how steep can Alice go, oh yes we'll use that um, and uh, is it is it flat or is it curved or, yeah, we had a a bunch of like really interesting play dates around um, slopes and curves and ramps.
0: I wonder if this would be a good time to pivot a bit and talk about your piece in the recent special issue of Catalyst on crypt technoscience. Just a couple months ago um, in May at NYU, we had a big lunch party for the special issue and you read from your piece on cultural aesthetic disability technoscience and also showed a lot of great images and gifts and things like that. So where has this concept been taking you since you wrote that piece?
2: I think primarily where I am with that is working through the necessity of the aesthetic um, uh, as a way of getting us past individualistic design. Um, That is, you know, I don't I don't think it is good design if I can choose what color I paint my wheelchair. so, I want to be able to push the notion of designing my body in a way that's kind of like around that it's like these cultural practices of understanding like what is a body? What does a body do? Why must I design movement and my movement capacity to be um, basically as functional as possible? like in, 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 And I mean, pedestrianly functional, as in like. Moving around. Why can't I design for extreme movement? Why can't I push into, like, what happens when the mobility technologies are aesthetic um, and non-functional for their design use? And I, I really, I think that we've been asking the wrong questions because the kinds of design that um, that that we're encountering are basically designs that restore the body to normative function as close as possible. And um, that's not what I want. You know, I wanna be able to figure out what is the maximum expression of my impairment. So for example, I love my crutches. They have rotating, articulating feet, uh, which are great. They're great, they're carbon fiber, they have rotating, articulating feet. Uh, and they are designed that way to enable normative, as much normative walking as possible and of a minimum wear and tear on the joint. Um, but I want to ask the question is like, what is the aesthetic of that when it becomes an arm, uh, like a dance arm? What kinds of cultural practices do I, can I, can I gather information about, about movement? Like, you know, does it have to be walking? Can it be skiing? Can it be twirling? Can it be whatever it is? Um, and have those kinds of questions leave the design process more clearly than what does it take for Alice to be able to walk so I've gone beyond the question of you know this is a this is a this is a this is a replica this is a assistive technology um to uh this is a cultural technology this is an aesthetic technology it has to look good but it's looking good as an arm versus a leg or it's looking good um laura lawson uh, together with um paul schulte from invicare designed a wheelchair for us that you know is backless and you know you get to see the spine in a way it it it, that you've never seen in a wheelchair before Um, you know it's and, and it moves in a different way because it's designed by this anyway do you get what i'm saying it's not this way in which we're looking at technology as a kind of practical outcome based we're looking for expressions of impairment versus um the incidentality of the impairment and once you get the expression of the impairment you can really engage it with disability culture um yeah
0: So speaking of disability culture, I wonder what your thoughts are about the idea that disability arts should be for disabled people as the primary audience and not non-disabled people.
2: Um, Well, uh, I'm going to I've had I've had some big fights about this one since I spoke to you last. So I'm going to go. Uh, and I put my sticks down in different places Uh, I am tired of going to performances that explain or pieces of art that explain disabled life mainly to non-disabled people with the point of arguing for social justice or equality at the end Um, now that's a controversial statement Uh, because some disabled people are not familiar with our culture. And this is one of the ways in which we learn our culture is that we encounter it in art and that we encounter these ideas in literature. And um, that's how we learn and how we get embedded um, and how we are invited into our world. But you know, I'm also like, I don't need that. I don't want that. And disability culture is more than the constant arguing for justice and the constant explaining of the, of, of, of a disabled life. Um, and, and I usually get around this by quoting uh, Toni Morrison at people. Um, and this is the, the, the incorrect quote, but you'll get the picture. Basically, Tenny Morrison says, in an essay that is great on racism and bad on, on disability, um, the, the, the function of racism, the very true function of racism is it keeps you from doing your work. Um, and and it, it keeps you explaining that you have no history So you find your history. It says you have no science, so you find your science. It says that your heads are the wrong shape, so you prove your scientists spend time doing that. It says you have no language or culture, so you spend your time proving that. None of this matters. There will always be one more thing. And that just, you know, that that for me was just like a turning point. It it expressed for me uh, exactly the thing that had been so frustrating about every disability arts event that I'd been to for 10 freaking years. It was like, ouch, no, not that. Um, where, who are we when we're not justifying our humanity to others? Who are we when we are not explaining to others that we have a right to be in this world? Who and what are we? What is our aesthetic? And, and, and really, um, what is our culture? And I don't mean culture as in terms of like cultural practices where we are in each other and what we believe, but like how do our how do our works affect each other? What is the legacy of tradition, innovation, and influence? How does Riva Lara show up in somebody else's work? What are the resonances of Leah's work in in, you know, like what are the you know how, what conversations can be had between, um, yeah. So those larger questions, um, yeah. How do we connect the dots among us? How do we learn from each other? Instead of this constant working in isolation, make, and, and, you know, I guess the other part of this is what is work? When it is not an um an exploration of an individual impairment, not that you can't do that, but that is not the only way of making it work right so for me, like when I'm doing a lot of stuff, looking at the connection between those crutches of my wheels on one body. I'm thinking about Lisa Bufano, whose use of prosthetics is magical. But I'm also thinking about Sunny Taylor's work and her portrait of herself and her book on disability and animal liberation. So I am embedded in what I'm calling disability, culture disability aesthetics. I'm not trying to explain to somebody that it is difficult to move through the world in a wheelchair. Does this make any sense to you?
0: Yes, definitely. And I think that this is a really important point um, that we need to reinforce not only with non-disabled people, but within our own disability communities. That so much of the work that we do, going back to that translation concept we discussed earlier, is about explaining in a really basic disability 101 way what is ableist and what ableism is. I've written a little bit in the context of architecture about how this has really confined our theories of accessibility because Mm -hmm. we're always explaining to non-disabled people or people who don't think that they need or benefit from access, what access is, but actually, we need to get a little bit more in depth within our internal discourses and communities about what counts as good access and different ways of thinking about the problems that arise around access so that we can be intersectional so that we can be critical and these are discussions that just don't happen or that we don't always have energy for if all we're doing is assuming an audience that's beginning um, in a different place and we can have much more nuanced internal discussions about these things. So I think what you're saying is extremely important.
2: Right, I mean, just take the basic concept of care, right? Leah's book on care is utterly gorgeous yes it's so amazing right but it is it is controversial if you think about the ways and so in which that connects to other philosophies of care and interdependence that have been articulated like and 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 it's it's like who was going to 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 talk about those perspectives um, as as writers, as makers of culture, as makers of art, that's that is you know you know maybe people will read one book and not recognize the internal debate that's happening in that book.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I could, go ahead. I was going to sure. say um, one thing that I really loved in Leo's book that also comes up in the interview with um, Sean and Eliza and Lindsay is this idea of a generational culture, right? I think there's this sort of a long standing idea that disability quote unquote, doesn't get passed down, right? Uh, so it's not uh, a kind of cultural heritage. Um, but what Leah's arguing is that there have always been uh, disabled folks among us and that the kinds of strategies for access and care that uh, have been developed over generations and then passed down through disability communities actually are inherited and there is a kind of knowledge base that grows and builds upon past communities and that this kind of idea that we're starting from the beginning with every new generation or we're starting from the beginning, as you're saying, with the artworks, um, I think this this is the way that Sean put it, right? That like, oh, every disability artwork has to start from Square one to explain what disability is, what ableism is, and as Amy was saying, kind of reproduce disability 101, then you actually lose sight of the kind of richness of disability culture and the historical knowledge and the kind of collaborative world building that's happening. So, yeah, I I think this is really resonant.
2: Right. Or you could, you know, you could like say that there's a particular um, Western white way of, of thinking about it and that. What, you know, and that's one of the ways in which those, those philosophies of care, like who who are the culture bearers, who are the who are the, the memory holders, who the you know, where are, are, what, what lineage are we looking at? And so, not recognizing that is, I think, you know, it it is a consequence of not being, you know, sometimes you know. It's complicated because not every disabled person wants to be in that culture, and not every person, disabled person who might want to be in that culture has access to that culture. Uh, and that's one of the beautiful things that um, uh, Mia Mingus give a Mia uh, gave a a, co- a really rich address at this with Sandy, uh, organized by Sandy this year, uh, and so Mia's keynote. Was all about having the choice to belong or not. Was not all about. Was in part about who has access to this room, who has access to the culture, who has access to the history and the culture and the connections, and um, and the implications for that for art making are really, really, really complicated. If you are not connected to community, maybe you don't want to be, but maybe you do, and that means that you you don't necessarily get access to making complex work that isn't about your personal experience of impairment that you explain to someone. I don't know. And so I want to be really careful of making, of reproducing elitist hierarchies around our own culture.
0: You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Learn more about our projects at mapping-access.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you cite the original source, aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.